because we bring you news and views that you can use and this is where we talk to you, for you, with you, and about you, and it is always all Thank you for joining us. This is Colette Williams and I'm Corliss this afternoon on Conversations with Colette and Corliss. And we've got some stand-ins. Corliss won't be in this afternoon, but that's okay. We're going to have a great conversation anyway. I've got great people on this broadcast and they will join in and we will get this party going and it will be a great conversation. That's why we call it Conversations with Colette and Corliss. So let's get this party started. I'm so glad that it's hump day. It's hump day, y'all. It's hump day. It's still a scorcher. I know that it is 104 in Dallas. How in the world? And it's about that in California. And what never ceases to amaze me is how people always say California has the best weather. Excuse me. Then Texas has the best weather because it's the same. It is practically the same. The humidity here is unbearable. The humidity there is unbearable. But the only difference is if you are, if you're south, if you're way south, some parts of the hood and some parts past the hood, if you're way south, you get that ocean breeze. That's the only difference. Go to Houston. You'll get the ocean breeze. If you're in Galveston, you get the ocean breeze. But in California, please, the weather is the same. And I don't care what folks say. It's the same. 104 is 104. And in Pasadena today, it was 100 degrees. So you know what? Say what you want. Say what you want. I'm just saying it's hot wherever it is. We can't change the weather. There's nothing we can do about it. We just have to live with it. Pray as you're living with it. And remember, in California, folks are never satisfied. So they're going to complain about the hot weather. Then in December, January, February, they're going to complain about the snow and the rain. It's too wet. I'll be glad when the rain is over. They're going to complain about it all. So just, you know what, come on. And there's so many other things that we have to contend with. And weather is one of those things that you can't do anything about. So stop complaining about the weather and just ride it out until you can do better. How's everybody doing this afternoon? How are you, Dr. Baird? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I'm anxious to get this conversation going with Dr. Baird. She and I have had conversations leading up to this afternoon, and I'm anxious to get this started. Dr. Baird is an expert in nicotine and also as a counselor, and I'm not saying that she's a, an expert in nicotine because she indulges. She's an expert <laughs> in what not to do in the area of nicotine. She has an extensive background, and it is absolutely a pleasure to have Dr. Karen Baird on this afternoon. How are you, Dr. Baird? I'm well, and thank you for having me here this afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you and your uh, listeners, and um, I'm just excited about our conversation. 
Very good, very good. One of the things, and I hope you don't mind that I start with this, one I'd like for you to tell us about yourself and tell us why this platform that you have against nicotine, why it's so important. And people need to understand that this is something that is life-changing. If you don't relieve your, your mind, your body, your spirit of nicotine, it will come back to get you. It will haunt you. The longer you indulge, the greater your chances are of being haunted by it. So tell us about yourself as we begin. Okay, I, I guess I'll start my story with how I came to do this work. Um, I was married for 23 years to a man who smoked. Um, when I met my husband, um, <clears throat> he was smoking uh, Newport cigarettes and had been smoking those cigarettes since he was 15. Mm. And um, throughout our marriage, over the course of our marriage, I'll say, uh, my husband had lung cancer three times. Uh, the first time he had lung cancer, uh, they removed, I think it was the left, uh, half of the left lung, and he continued to smoke. The second time he had lung cancer, they removed a third of the other lung, and he continued to smoke. Now, I knew he was intelligent. You know, I couldn't figure out why he kept smoking, you know, after going through these surgeries. I knew he was intelligent because he married me, right? So, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so um, he continued to smoke. Um, I thought I could help him because I have a counseling psychology background, but, you know, I'll be completely transparent and say that I did all the wrong things to help him. Um, I tried counseling and I thought it was working. And then I found out that, you know, he was not being honest and truthful with me about not smoking. So unfortunately I defaulted to the wifey thing. So then I fussed, cussed, threatened, you know, um, and that did nothing but drive him underground. And so November 25th, uh, 2013, my husband died as a result of his third lung surgery. He just didn't have enough lung left. And Colette, I carried a lot of guilt around that because it was like, why couldn't you help him? You know, what went wrong? Mm -hmm. And so as I reflected on, you know, my experience over those years with trying to get him to give up nicotine, I realized that while I knew counseling and psychology, I did not know nicotine. I did not know tobacco. And so I made it my business to learn about it. So I attended uh, Florida State University. Uh, they have a program for tobacco treatment specialists, and I completed that program. I came, became certified, and I started uh, facilitating stop smoking classes for tobacco-free Florida. I also decided not to focus on what I lost, but to focus, which was, you know, my husband, it was a very sad time for me, and I, I needed to pull myself into a better place, so I decided to do those things that I weren't able to do when I was married to him, like live in California, because he was afraid of earthquakes. Oh. Now, we live in Florida, so <laughs> go figure, hurricane, oh, right? Really? Right, so I moved out here to the West Coast and in 2015 and launched my career as a tobacco treatment specialist, mm. you know, in um, Southern California. 
And so that's how I came to, you know, do this work. And once I started doing the work, I had such a, it, I saw such a need and I had such a passion for, you know, helping families not to go through what I went through that in the beginning, I did it without pay. And I'm not, Brad, that's not a feather in my cap. I'm just saying that, you know, that's how passionate I am about getting the products out of our neighborhoods, uh, teaching people how to give up uh, nicotine and um, just improving the quality of life for our people. And it's interesting. We have a group of people who feel like, well, I'm going to go from something. Might as well go enjoy, enjoy what I'm doing. Might as well go from that. Then there's another group of people that say, um, well, just a little bit. I don't smoke every day. Just a little bit. Then there's another group that just doesn't care, period, at all. They're not on either side. They just don't care. And as I mentioned to you before, my mother-in-law smoked. And she had lung surgery. And they took, I believe they took most of that lung out. And what she did not realize at the time was it was going to metastasize. And it did. And it went to her brain. And it it was a very challenging time. It was a very challenging time. My grandfather had a stroke. And just pure blessings that when he had the stroke, he was in the bathroom and my grandmother heard something and she went in there and he had had a stroke. Well, my grandfather, after the stroke, would sit in his favorite chair in the living room. You could always find him in his chair. Well, my grandmother would come to me and say, uh, I'm going to the store. I've got to get cigarettes for your dad. I would hit the ceiling. Mother, you are not going to go to the store to buy cigarettes for dad. Well, then what am I going to do? He asked for him. Mother, he's sitting in a chair after a stroke. You're going to let him still smoke? Well, what must I do? He wants them. I don't care what he wants. Can he beat you up? No. But she bought the cigarettes for him anyway because she said that's what he wanted. Not understanding clearly that she was helping his demise. Mm -hmm. She helped him because after the stroke, he had had a heart attack. For every puff that he took, he was inching himself closer to a heart attack. And he didn't spend a lot of time in and out of the hospital, too much time, too much time. And in our community, we have folks that don't care about the liquor store. The liquor store is supposed to be in the community. As long as the liquor store is there selling all of those things that you do not need, they want the liquor store there. And as I told you, I don't go into liquor stores. Call me whatever you want. I don't care. I don't go to liquor stores because I think that they are traps because they don't sell health food. They don't sell anything that's healthy. Their main product is liquor and tobacco. Who really needs a liquor store? Because they're not there to help you. And they are not a convenience store. 
They sell liquor and they sell tobacco. The two things our community can do without. Absolutely. Uh, to answer your question, there are people who say, well, you know, I got to die by, you know, from something I may as well die from something that I enjoy. Be pleasure. How could somebody uh, yeah. say that smoking is pleasurable? I'll never understand that. Well, I don't want to get real technical, but it is pleasurable <laughs> because when you um, uh, smoke the brain, it takes 10 seconds for the nicotine to get to the brain. And once it gets to the brain, it mimics the uh, neurotransmitters of dopamine. That's your feel good. Okay. It also affects the um, production of your serotonin. So that's your sleep or calming down uh, neurotransmitters. So when people say it's pleasurable, it is. You know, you get an instant uh, jolt of dopamine. So if you're depressed, if you're tired or whatever, it's a stimulant, it'll lift you up. If you're upset and you need to calm down, it'll calm you down. You know, it's almost like I, you know, use this word, but maybe a miracle type of psychoactive uh, substance because it can meet all needs. And that's one of the things that makes it so hard to get people to stop using because it, it, it can meet any kind of need. And I like to say all behavior is motivated by need or desire. Nobody starts smoking because they want to die. What people don't realize is that you don't die, you know, summarily. You don't die right away. And and maybe that's why uh, the social norms around smoking um, support having tobacco in our uh, communities. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes about 15 to 30 years with tobacco-related diseases to show up. Mm -hmm. And so young people will say, well, by the time, you know, in about five, 10 years, I'll just stop. And then I won't get the uh, tobacco-related diseases. Uh, my husband, in addition to having cancer, he had emphysema, he had COPD, and he continued. Uh, near the end of his life, he was on oxygen 24-7. Oh, no. And he continued to smoke. So it's, it's, it's not easy. Once it runs, once the brain gets involved, it's very hard for them to use willpower to just give it up. Some people do, but they are the minority. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it's not just a matter of not purchasing the product or not using the product because what happens once the brain gets involved? Now you tell yourself that you need this. You know, uh, I don't know if you are familiar with like the nicotine patch. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. The nicotine patch, you can put the patch on to help you stop smoking. The problem is if you smoke a cigarette, you'll get a hit of nicotine in 10 seconds. It takes the patch about 30 to 45 minutes. So some people, they can't wait, you know, to get that hit of nicotine. Really? Right. So um, we usually say if you use the patch, then that you, you know, use gu the gum. Well, people don't realize that we call it gum, but if you chew it, it's going to make you sick. You're supposed to just bite down on it and put it, you know, between your cheek 
you know, and, and your tongue and let the nicotine slowly dissolve. Oh. It's, it's more fast acting than the patch. So you need the combination. Many people don't know how to use the nicotine replacement therapy products. Mm-hmm. And as a professional, I take responsibility for that because we don't always teach them how to use it. We tell them, you know, get the patch, do this, do that. And if you've ever seen the instructions on the nicotine products, listen, I have a degree, a a doctorate, and it took me two or three times to read it to really understand Mm. how I'm supposed to use it. Then the, the text is so small. That's a barrier. I mean, if you've got to, like, you know, go through hoops to read it, uh, it's so easy to say, I'm just not going to use it. And then the other thing is that the products are kept behind the uh, counters, usually in a locked, um, can, you know, cabinet. So you can't even access it without, you know, the clerk. And these are all barriers to people becoming familiar with the nicotine mm-hmm. um, products. Mm-hmm. And so that's one reason why, you know, if if you put too many barriers between a person and their goal, they won't, or if if it's too much information, they're just not going to do anything. They won't reach it. No, they won't because it's so easy for us just to, it's status quo, you know, let me just do what I was doing. It's not, I'm not dying yet. And the other thing that people don't realize is that it's the, um, you may not die, but you'll have to live with the disability. Yeah. Uh, yeah. as a result of, you know, smoking. Uh, I would also say that the commercials that we see, they are fear-based. And you and know what? Yeah. Yeah. I've had people who smoke tell me, oh, when I see those commercials, it just make me want to light up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it increases yeah. the anxiety. Yeah. You know, and so we have a lot of work to do around how to help people to yeah. give up nicotine. Right, right. And I was going to say, those commercials, especially the one where the woman has lost, I believe it was her right side of her face and neck, and she eventually perished. And then the other one where she has uh, a uh, his esophagus and he uses the device mm-hmm. on his neck. He's gone. And then there's another one. And the recent ones are, they are fear-based. They really are. And I understand that if you put that much fear into someone, maybe they'll stop. Mm-hmm. And it sometimes it doesn't work that way. It just does not work that way. So, again, again, your brain is going to protect you. But your yeah. first response is going to be either, I don't believe it. It won't happen to me, yeah. you know, or, you know, because you, you're in a protective mode. And so I'm not saying that fear-based messages are not effective sometimes. But when you're, most of the people I, I have worked with, smokers, people who smoke, um, they just ignore them. Or they, they'll, if it's a commercial, they, they'll change channels or whatever because it does produce anxiety. So um I think a better approach with not is not, you know, fear-based messages, but maybe value-based messages. What does that person value? How can you um 
highlight that person's value strengths, um, you know, come from a positive uh, perspective. Because, you know, when we ask people to stop smoking, we're asking them to do something that they believe in. We may not believe that it's healthy for them. You know, we see it as a problem. They see it as a solution. Sometimes I say nicotine is the poor man's uh, value. Mm-hmm. You know, I can smoke a cigarette and it calms me down. You know, so unless professionals and, and, and those of us who love people who smoke see it from their perspective, it's very difficult to um, to get people to give up something that they value. Right. So how do you see it from someone else's perspective? I'm not clear on that one. Mm-hmm. Well, what I do is that, I, and th- I learned this from my husband, working, you know, trying to help my husband. When I reflect back, Colette, on, on what I did, I wish I hadn't talked so much. Mm. I wish I had listened more. And instead of making statements like, you should quit smoking, you know, that word should, just turned him off. I learned to ask questions. Mm-hmm. I wish that I had asked him, what is it about smoking that you like, you know, or why is it you don't wake up to smoke? But as soon as you wake up, you want a cigarette. Now, he may not even know the answer, but questions are less threatening than making statements, mm-hmm. especially when you're asking someone to give up something. Um, in psychology, we call it psychological reactance. And I think it starts around teenage years. You ask them to do something, you know, I don't want you to go out with that boy or that girl. And that's the thing they want to do, right? But grown folks are like that too. You ask me to give up something that's probably been a friend to me all these years. You know, when I'm bored, I can smoke and feel better. If I'm lonely, um, I remember I worked with a client. I felt so bad for him because he had, he had a developmental uh, disability. So he wasn't able to drive. So what that meant is he had to use a Medicaid cab to go everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, a Medicaid cab, I think you have to um, re- reserve the cab three days in advance. So he couldn't be spontaneous. He couldn't say, oh, I want to go to the store to get this or that, you know, because he had to, you know, he had reserved this cab. So he said to me, well, Dr. Beard, you know, these cigarettes, are my- I have 20 friends. He said, only thing I do is sit in my apartment all day. He said, what else am I going to do? So he was a chain smoker, a young man in his Mm -hmm. uh, 20s, Mm. you know, on his own. So um, it's very important and imperative that we show compassion and look at the situation from the person's perspective. You know, Stephen Covey's fifth principle says, seek first to understand. then be understood, Mm -hmm. you know, and and like I said to you during our conversation, if I were to walk up to you and say, let, I know that you are right-handed, but uh, going forward, I know from this day forward, I want you to use your left hand. I don't want you to use your hand. Mm -hmm. So now that could produce anxiety in you. You could be thinking, well, you know, will I be able to do it? Um, what is that going to mean? You know, will I fail? You know, um, and with people who smoke and you ask them to give up cigarettes, it's like, um, well, what do I do when the fan after dinner, 
and, uh, you know, like Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, and everybody, you know, goes outside to smoke. I can no longer go outside to smoke. So what do I do at the family gatherings? Or if you at work, you people take smoke breaks. I'm accustomed to going out with my coworkers and smoking. What do I do now? So it's a lifestyle change. We look at it as just giving up the habit, but they people who smoke build a lifestyle around the uh, the uh, act of smoking. I think it is it is realized that it is a lifestyle change, and I do believe that two things, people are afraid of lifestyle change and they don't want to engage in a lifestyle change because change by itself is a challenge and can represent anxiety and change can make people feel unbalanced and this is not what I've known and they become fearful. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's the, the, the fear of the unknown. You know, we all have it. Some of us just are more brave or have more courage than others, but it's the fear of the unknown, especially when it, it affects relationships. You know, I worked with a couple and the husband wanted to quit, but the wife didn't quit smoking, yeah. quit smoking. And so, um, she couldn't support him because she's smoking. But now do you, you, you leave your husband? Would he leave his wife because she smoked, you know, break up his home? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't an easy fix. So the question is no. <laughs> right, right. You, you, you can't break up your home. And the same thing when you ask, you know, the act of smoking is coupled with other behaviors that we do daily, sure. like maybe drinking a cup of coffee. You know, so now I maybe can ask, you know, we can work with breaking that uh, chain of smoking and drinking coffee at the same time. But now if you smoke after your meals, it's very hard for me to say, uh, well, just don't eat because that's going to trigger you to smoke. <laughs> I don't think that would go over well. Right. You know, some people, you know, they, they couple behaviors, the smoking behavior with routine behaviors like driving to work um i had a guy who um he told me he smoked 15 cigarettes before he got to work now he was a chain smoker now um there are only 20 in a pack what and i'm like really well he said driving in the traffic was stressful and um so um i forget the distance from his job but, you know, he had to, you know, drive, a, I think, about 30 minutes to work. And he was just a chain smoker. So now, I, I can't say, well, don't drive anymore. Just stay out the car. You okay. Know. But if smoking calms a person down in traffic because of the stress, it, and it seems like trading one very bad habit for another. Mm-hmm. And it seems like if you give up smoking, you'll live longer, but you can't give up smoking because you have to have the smoking in order to relieve yourself of stress. Well, if you're not smoking, you're going to be stressed out from not smoking. Mm-hmm. 
So it, it, it's, it sounds like it's really a vicious circle and cycle. Cycle, yes. And so what we do or what, what, what I do is that and because one of the um, mistakes I think we make when we tell people to give up smoking, we don't put something back. You can't leave a void. You've got to put something in the place of that behavior. Uh-huh. And so um, what I do is I teach them skills to use instead of the co- coping with stress or any negative effect by using, you know, nicotine. And so I do like an in-depth interview with them to, I call it a get to know you session. Cause I really do want to know, cause mm-hmm. I feel like one size does not fit all. We have to work with the person who's in front of us. And so I want to get to know you before I start to ask you to do things like give up yeah. smoking. So you find out the skills that, that, um, the person needs. And I think another, uh, thing that we do, we don't realize how complicated and complex it is to give up nicotine. Um, it takes emotional, um, physical, and mental energy to change a behavior. Sure does. Incorporate sure. something. So now couple that with if you're working with a person who already has chronic uh, conditions that they're trying to manage, that could be diabetes, um, you know, cardiovascular disease, or you know, any. Sure. So they already have that to contend with on a daily basis. So here I come asking them to add other things into their day. So sometimes it's a matter of being, they want to do it. In fact, uh, the Truth Initiative, which is a nonprofit tobacco control uh, website, uh, reported that 70% of African Americans want to quit smoking, but only three percent actually right. go successfully. And I think that's because it is difficult to integrate a lifestyle change. You know, we do the IKEA, I call it the IKEA effect, where we bring them to class, we give them a lot of information, and we send them home and say, now um, make it work. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to, but if you've ever bought anything from Ikea and you get home, oh, yes. you got yes. to put that stuff together. Yes. It's like, yes. Oh no, this is going back because <laughs> I can't put it together. Right. People who smoke, we give them all that information. We send them out. We say, now stop smoking. Well, we haven't shown them how to integrate it into their lives. And so instead of providing, I think instead of providing just information, we need to b- provide support, guided support. We need to do follow-up to make sure that they are practicing. And that's what I call it. Um, because when you're trying to make a change, it, you know, you, it's almost like an experiment. You know, you do something, you see if it works. If it doesn't, you self-correct. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not usually a one and done. Right. 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 And, and so unless we change, and when I say we, the people that love we have loved ones that smoke, uh, the professionals that serve people who smoke, um, you know, change our perspective of how we, we view our perception of how we view, um, giving up the uh, behavior, you know, like I no longer say smokers. I, I work hard to say people who smoke 
because I want to separate the behavior from the person because I'm already starting that identity shift. You know, you're not a smoker. I don't want to call you a smoker. You're a person who smokes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now you, I'm separating the behavior from that person. So is, is that term smoker? Is that, does that sound harmful? I don't, I don't think people are, people who smoke are offended by it. I, I don't think they are. But, you know, my background, I come from a disability and rehabilitation background. And, you know, that's, I think it was in the 90s when we decided, we call it person-centered language. We no longer say the disabled. We say people with disabilities. And I felt that it was also, and the reason we did that, Colette, was because um, we wanted to separate the the disability from the person because we're trying to build a new um, identity. Uh, we're trying to uh, develop a new image. And so we want that person to view whatever they're struggling with is not a part of who they are, but right. just a, right. yeah. something that they're dealing with. And same thing with people who smoke. You start yes. that identity shift by separating the behavior from the person. Right. Right. And from a subconscious level, you know, it's amazing because they'll start to think of themselves uh, differently. Right. So how do you build in resilience? How do you incorporate those people who need to quit and every single one of them needs to quit, even with tobacco companies raising the price of cigarettes, right now it's do you buy gas, food, or cigarettes? You can't buy all three. You sure can't buy two. So how do people still smoke when gas is just now going down? It's still well over five dollars. So how do how do people buy cigarettes? Well, I you know, people buy what they want and yeah. sometimes yeah. bid for what they need. But um it's a value. They value smoking and so you you put your money where your values are uh cigarettes i think i in the compton area i think newports cost twelve dollars or a a pack or a box a pack (gasps) twelve dollars for a pack Pack. right and there are 10 packs in a carton so you do the math and then in canada they're 25 dollars you're kidding. And, but, you know, well, um, people will rationalize and it also depends on how risk avert, if they have risk aversion. Some people will, it's easier to give it up because they, they're not risk takers, you know. Other people who are, they may, you know, they gamble. I won't get the diseases. Yeah. Um, if I do, it won't be so bad or I'll survive, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a lot of the psychology of it. And that's why I say in terms of the uh, physical effects of uh, nicotine withdrawal, you could, they get over that in two to four weeks. Mm-hmm. But it's the psychological grip yeah. that um, nicotine, you know, once you tell yourself, once you believe that I need this, to make me feel a certain kind of way. Now, I smoked back in the 70s. I started with, um, what was that, Virginia Slims. But now, I started smoking 
not to manage negative effect, you know, or, um, you know, anxiety or, you know, stress or whatever. I was trying to look cute in the club. I was going to say that there was a time when you smoked because it was cute and to have your hands up with mm-hmm. the smoke, uh, that thing that you put the cigarette in and right. it was cute. You, were, you were cute when you were talking to somebody and you had your cigarette up. Right. Yeah. Really? And my girlfriend told me, she said, um, and she said, we're going to get a pack of Virginia Slims and uh, when we go to the club, you take the cigarette out, but you don't light it. And a, and a guy come over and lights your cigarette. And that's how you can And yeah, and a cigarette holder. Yeah. Well, not that's a how holder, the conversation starts. Mm-hmm. A, you know, and for the most part, that did work. But she did tell me some of them would be crazy and you wouldn't want to know them. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so people rationalize. Now, I gave it, I gave up smoking because the pack went up to 75 cents. And at that time, 75 cents was a pack, was mm-hmm. a gallon of gas. Yes. And I said, no, I'm not going to, this is way too much. So there are some people, no matter what they cost, they will purchase them. Um, but now the tobacco industry, as you know, we've had conversations around this. They target our communities with these products. And how they make them affordable is that they offer coupons uh, or some kind of discount. So, mm-hmm. yes, you can go online and get coupons. And so cigarettes for cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, in the Compton area, we did research. I'm the project manager for this study called uh, uh, cessation capacity building. Uh, What we're trying to do is, uh, or what we're doing is training 10 community-based organizations, how to deliver tobacco cessation services because when we did our preliminary uh, research we found out that in spa six um service mm-hmm. planning area six in la county there mm-hmm. are 500 tobacco retailers there are only three organizations that offer tobacco cessation services that we've identified so far so what that means is if you want to smoke, you have 500 different places you can buy them. 500? Within the whole spot. And you know what? And I, I've been in spot six. I was at Youth Opportunities Unlimited, Crenshaw High School, and, and some of the other schools, and they're in spot six. Mm-hmm. And if you take 500 tobacco offering spaces, that means those are Liquor stores, convenience stores, and grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And anything else, right. Right. But just as George Frazier has stated so eloquently, we don't have anything else, but we certainly have those things mm-hmm. that are detrimental to our community, to our mm-hmm. families, to our health. Mm-hmm. And we still continue to patronize those areas or those companies that do nothing to help us. Right. They, they put everything out there that is damaging. And we still take that in and say, it's my prerogative. Mm-hmm. But it isn't your prerogative because what you do impacts everybody else. It doesn't stop with you. It doesn't begin or end with you. It and impacts so many others. That's a narrative that we need to push forward. Um 
And also there's only three places in that area, spa six, that you can stop, go to um, learn how to stop smoking. Mm -hmm. There's only three, 500 where you can buy, three places where you can go to stop, learn how to stop smoking. And to your point about, you know, what we do as a community, in some communities, uh, there are ordinances that say um, that prevent um, tobacco sales within 500 feet. Some is a thousand feet of a school. But I don't think Compton has that ordinance. So when I did my little tour of uh, Compton, I, w- I wanted to see firsthand what the people who live there are up against when they try to give up smoking. So I noticed that there was an elementary school and right across the street was um, uh, a 7-Eleven that sold cigarettes. And they even, they, they didn't have many, but they did have some posters, uh, you know, showing the new ports and all that, mm-hmm. you know, they had signage, I'll call it signage. And um, in uh, many neighborhoods, you don't, I don't see that signage where I live. You know, I, I can't even tell you if where I gas up, if they sell right, right. cigarettes. But in our neighborhoods uh, or other neighborhoods that, that are predominantly our people, um, you see it all the time. And I think it's because we tolerate. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, and we do tolerate. tolerate. We, tolerate. we mm-hmm. want those outlets in the community. Our communities fail to function if those outlets are not there, when when putting outlets in communities, the first thing in the black community is a liquor store. Mm-hmm. It's a liquor store. Now I can't tell you how to vote, but I can I can tell you that on the uh, November eighth ballot will be Senate Bill seven seven ninety three, and what that will do if it's passed is that will uh, ban the sale of menthol cigarettes throughout California. Talk to us about that. Well, it will ban cigarettes throughout California. We also just had, I'm not cigarettes, let me uh, ban the sale of menthol cigarettes. Oh, wow. Menthol cigarettes. Um, LA County just recently passed an ordinance that banned the sale of menthol cigarettes, you know, in the county. And I think it was 2019 that the uh, unincorporated areas of L.A. County, the Board of Supervisors, uh, banned the sale of menthol cigarettes um, in in the unincorporated areas. And I want to emphasize the sale because there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation in our community around banning the sale of menthol cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have heard that, you know, it would um, make the possession of, you know, caught with um, a, menth- a pack of menthol cigarettes a crime. It is not the possession of the product. It's the manufacturer and the sale. That's what's being banned. So it's it only relates to retailers. And I don't want you to take it from me. Uh, you can go to uh, the public uh, law health wealth website, or you can go to the FDA's website. Right now, the FDA is in a rulemaking process to 
take menthol cigarettes off the market. And so, you know, there's a lot of um, dissension around whether that's a good move for the uh, Black community, you know, African-American community. And the tobacco industry is huge. The tobacco industry is very big. Mm -hmm. They yield a whole lot of power and a whole lot of money. Mm -hmm. And they put money into making sure that tobacco stays in poor communities. They put a lot of money into that. They glamorize it. They they are very savvy when it comes to marketing. They have, um, what they've done is they do lifestyle marketing. If you see all of the um, uh, the uh, signage, the ads and whatnot, well, you know, they can't, you know, do ads anymore. But it was always happy black people, you know, cool. And, you know, uh, I didn't even know back in the day that uh, the Jazz Schools Festival was sponsored by cool cigarettes. I thought that, I don't know what I thought. I didn't even think about it. I didn't put the two together that these are the cigarettes. So that's how they get all up into our community. There's an article called Sleeping with the Enemy. Yes. And it talks about how the tobacco industry has been very successful in funding events that they know we like, uh, organizations that we respect, uh, magazines, and even, you know, medical schools like uh, Mahari has received. Which is so yeah. ironic, your medical school, but anyway. Um, <laughs> going that, it's that. because I, of the money. Digress, it's because of the money. It's, it's the money. So they're That's very the good at doing that. And so, um, but talking about resilient, I think that we as a community, not only do we have to be resilient, we have to be proactive in yes, speaking yes. up. Now, Absolutely. some people think when they don't smoke, the issue doesn't touch them, but it touches everybody because there's secondhand smoke and then there's thirdhand smoke. And I believe the health of the community reflects on everybody. And so if you have community members who are ill or, you know, have chronic illnesses because, um, because of smoking, or, you know, any chronic illnesses, it affects, you know, civic engagement. Yeah. They can't vote. People with emphysema or COPD, you know, they will have a, a challenging time standing in line for a long period of time, you know, to vote. Now, I think here in California, we may be all right because I think we still have mail-in ballots. But, you know, I'm originally from Florida right. where... They're take, trying to take away that right. You got to stand in that line. And, um, thank God November is not that hot, but, um, I'm just saying when you don't feel well, you cannot be civically engaged. And that's yeah. how it affects us all. Yeah. When people yeah. throw their cigarette butts down on the ground, it takes 20 years for that filter to naturally degrade, uh, because it's made out of cellulose. Well, um, our, our municipalities will come around and pick it up. You know, they pick it up. However, I think um, there was a report where one city, I think it was Sacramento, spent $400,000 just picking up cigarette butts. Mm, so yeah. Economic impact. So it touches us all, you know, um, whether you smoke or not, it touches us all. 
And so, you know, with resilience, um, people who smoke and say they do so because they're stressed. Yeah. Well, if you have a resilient mindset, a resilient attitude, um, it's easier for you to quit. Now, the definition of resilience is to bounce back, um, to stop back or whatever. Well, I like to go a little bit further and say it's not just about bouncing back. It's also about moving forward. Because for some of us, you don't want to bounce back to what where you were. You know, you really want to move forward. You want to, and it's not about not ever having to deal with adversity or challenges. That's not realistic. Yeah. Well, if you right. are breathing, you're going to have stress. All the time. All the time. If you're it's breathing. just how you handle it. Yes. And just like everything else. And we say it all the time. It's simply how you handle it. It's simply how you handle it. Everybody's going to have stress. And so, you know, when I like to, when I'm talking to people and they'll say, oh, Dr. Beard, this happened to me and it wasn't fair and this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, I'm just whatever, you know, what I say to them, it, your beliefs are supporting a coping style. Yes. That yes. is not productive for you. Right. All that may be true. Just look at it as this is what happened. You know, I, I don't know. I've always known that I think that my beliefs determined how I got through adverse situations. But I, I everybody just, has adverse situations. Mm-hmm. Everybody. When everybody. I was when I was seventeen. Yeah. I um I graduated from high school when I was seventeen. And um uh, I was a Florida girl. I had I had attended segregated schools, um, you know, segregated schools in the South. But I wanted to go north, and I was encouraged to go north because back then, unfortunately, um, counselors thought that you didn't get a good education in the South. You had to go north. So I chose the University of New Hampshire because I got a four-year scholarship, and I would be so far from my mother. I knew she wasn't going to call because she wanted to run her phone bill up. And she went on con because she was scared of flying. So I just saw myself being footloose and fancy free. So I went to New Hampshire. And my freshman year, um, I had a uh, roommate. Her name was Joanne. And Joanne was white. And she was a native of New Hampshire. Um, hadn't really interacted with many um, Black people. Mm-hmm. Back then, we were called Afro-Americans. So anyway, um, when Joanne... Uh, back then freshmen were, freshmen came to campus before everybody else because we had what you call freshman orientation. And so her parents came and Colette, I knew the minute her parents walked in the, in the room, I said, oh, this is not going to be good. Oh my God. I mean, they all but recoiled like this when they saw me. And so, um, Joanne and I got along fine. I mean, she was trying to teach me how to play the guitar and sing those folk songs and whatnot. I introduced her to Al Green. <laughs> so we got along fine. Oh, her parents, her parents went to administration and had her moved out of uh, the room. And so she apologized for her parents. And I thought, you know, it's fine. You know, don't worry about it. We'll see each other around, you know, campus. Then all hell broke loose. 
when the other students on campus found out about it, uh, and again, we had the Vietnam War protests going, we had civil unrest in the states, we had, uh, we were in the height of the hippie movement, just a lot of stuff going on. So people came to me and said, oh, we should protest, we should protest, you know, with Joanne moving out. Because the policy was, you can't move out until you were um, six, had been in the room six weeks. Now, I'm saying all that because they saw it as uh, injustice. She moved out. You know, she didn't want to live with me because I was black. But I saw it as I paid for half this room and I got the whole room by myself. (laughs) you know so it's not what happens to you when you talk about resilience it's not what happens to you that matters it's the meaning that you give it yes so all all that meant to me was that I had that room by myself I just wanted to get my education have that room by myself I did not want to not go to class to protest so when I talk to people who smoke it just in general when you talk about resilience and having a resilient mindset, your philosophy of life determines how resilient you are. Yes, yes, that's right. And and I think that there are a lot of people who think they do well, but don't understand resilience and don't understand perseverance. Mm-hmm. And we live in a day and time where everything is instant gratification Everything has to be their way, and that's the only way. And we're not supposed to live with values and morals. It's whatever happens, whatever floats your boat. It's whatever the slogan is at the current time. Well, it it is what it is, which is something that never comes out of my mouth. I can't stand that. And and we we give people reason not to. We give them reason not to be resilient. We give them it's not your to expectations too. It's the expectation. And if you, if you expect life to be just to go along and you don't have any challenges or, you know, adversity, no. I like, I like to flip that. And when I encounter a challenge or an adversity, I, I, I turn it into kind of like a, a test of life, if you will, you know, oh, how am I get through this? You know, and I'm excited to see how I come out on the, the, the other end of something rather than sinking back and say, why did that happen to me? And that wasn't fair, you know. Um, and we know. like to put band-aids on. We don't like to resolve and find resolution and, and really depend very, in a very strong, positive manner. And that's where resilience and perseverance comes in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we don't have people who rely on their own resilience, their own positive attitude. We, I see a lot of excuses, and there's one excuse called you don't know what you don't know, which to me is simply an excuse. Because nowadays, in this age, there should be no excuse for what you don't know. There are a whole lot of things that we don't know, but the mm-hmm. basics... We're supposed to know. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to know. We are supposed to persevere. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to persevere. When you stumble, you don't stumble and lay down. You stumble and stand up. Everybody's going to fall. Everybody's going to fall. You well, let's just take COVID. During COVID, 
some people focused on what they didn't have, what they couldn't do. Other people like me said, oh, wow, this is not, we have turned a corner, so I better retool. Exactly. You know, I better up my skills so when we come, if and when we come out of this, I'll be ready. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I had to learn the Zoom. I had to learn Slack. I had wow. to learn Trello, all of that, so that I could, and some people made more money doing COVID. COVID. That's right. Why? Because of the mindset, That's the resilient right. mindset. That's right. And those people, they didn't create the word pivot, but they certainly learned how to pivot. Mm-hmm. Okay, because there was no reason not to. No. I didn't pivot. I continued to work. Mm-hmm. But there was no reason not to. And exactly. for those that that felt like their world had crashed, and I'll never forget the woman out in uh, Hollywood who had to close her restaurant. And she's on television crying because she had to close her restaurant. And she said, what do I tell my employees, they won't be able to have a Christmas. They won't be able to, and I wanted to jump through the television and smack her. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? They won't be able to have a Christmas. Christmas is going to come whether they're working with your place or not. And mm-hmm. what they do to have the kind of celebration that they want, that's up to them. Mm-hmm. Stop making this about you. Don't you know that there are people back here who are, have lost lives? And I'll never forget that one. She went on camera crying because her restaurant had to close. You know what? That That's called the epitome of selfish as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, we, we have something we call benefit finding. And the common word for that is just look for the silver lining. For the silver lining. I'm out here. My family's in Florida. I have 18 grandkids and five great grands. And I wanted to see them, you know, for Christmas. I, I wasn't able to fly to see them. Thank God we had Zoom. Yes. And, and thank God my grandkids know about TikTok and yes. all of that because they made videos. And so you have to do it differently. Absolutely. See, when you have a resilient mindset, you, you accept having to maybe take another path. You know, even if you come back, you're not upset by it. Absolutely. Make it work for you. Make it work for you. You Make know, um, you can engage life on four levels. Yes. You can, you can engage it on the drama level where you say, that's not fair. You're looking for people to blame. You can engage it on a situation level where you say, um, well, how do I fix this? Or you can engage it on a choice level. You know, who do I want to be in this situation? Or the highest level, you can engage it on opportunity level. How can I make this work for me? And that's what I try. I looked at, well, what opportunities are co- is COVID going to bring that I can take advantage of? And then you ha- that's that resilient. That's absolutely. Thinking. That's what we need to do. But we most of us stay right down there with the drama. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. That's where people are comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it boils down to. But Dr. Barrett, I wish we could go on. It is, we're at the top of the hour, and I knew it would go by very, very quickly. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Do you give our listeners your information in case they'd like to get in touch with you? And at any time, you are welcome to come back, and let's continue this conversation. So give me your information. Okay, if you'd like to reach out to me, my telephone number is 727-512-1880. 
And thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And it has been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. And we will talk with you soon. And you have been listening to Intentional Talk Radio Network. This is ITRNRadio.com. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you on Sunday. Take care. Have a good evening. Good night.